want to ask a question. Do you think solidarity is a good thing? Solidarity, it sounds, it sounds as though it should be, doesn't it? Someone may say to me, uh, say, tell me what you mean by solidarity, however, and I'll tell you. Well, if you, you could define it as this, expressing identification with or support of a group or the people in it. I'll say that again. Expressing identification with or support of a group or the people in it. Somebody would correctly uh, challenge me and say, well, that would depend on who the group are. Who are these people you're talking about? For example, there's a world of difference. There has been a world of difference over this past year uh, in showing solidarity with the NHS on Thursday evenings uh, around 7 o'clock. People came out on the streets to show their solidarity for all that the NHS were doing in terms of supporting uh, those who had caught the COVID. There's a world of difference in that and showing solidarity with a terrorist group like ISIS, leaving your own country to go and, and join them or, or show them that you're, you're one with them in solidarity. So it much depends, doesn't it? Who are we talking about? In Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9, we read a curious incident involving the Lord sending venomous snakes among the Israelites. Why? Because they were uh, habitual moaners, grumblers, complainers. But following uh, apparent repentance and confession of sin, He commanded a way for them to be healed by looking. They're looking at a bronze effigy of a snake. What are we to make of this? It sounds positively weird, doesn't it? And yet, as we study this weird incident in the context in which it was given, as Old Testament history pointing forwards to the work of the New Testament, we'll see that it illustrates very eloquently some hard-hitting truths about the human condition, about your condition, my condition. Not just about Israelites of long ago, but it's about us. And we'll also see how it shows very deeply how how very deeply God loves us. The two major points uh, to think about which we find in this passage are, first of all, the solidarity which we humans have with the first Adam. And the second major point we're going to be looking at is the, the solidarity which the second Adam, the, as we've just been uh, praising God about, the new and better Adam, which He showed us for our salvation. So, first of all, then, the solidarity which we humans have with the first Adam. Now, as we look at this very strange incident, uh, and we'll just actually, I want to read again, I'll just read those few verses, because that's what they are, a few verses again. We read that they complained, there's no bread. Why have you brought us out here to die in the desert? They were saying to Moses and to God. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people. Many Israelites died. They came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes from us. So the Lord prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole 
Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and he looked at the bronze snake, he lived. I just thought I'd read that again. Angie read it very well to us, but I thought it bears repetition because we've never heard anything like this in our society or our times. Quite bizarre. But it, it is a way that we, 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 we will see that it illustrates very, very well our solidarity with the first Adam and the second Adam's solidarity with us for our salvation. Now, what's been happening here is that the Israelites have traveled through the wilderness journey for almost 40 years. Now, as they near the promised land, they're hit by disappointments and frustrations which is not new for them. They've been a moaning bunch for the last 40 years, so why change the habit of a lifetime? And we read in verse 4 that they traveled from Mount Hor, where they had buried Aaron, then along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. Now, they were going around Edom instead of through Edom because, as the previous chapter 20 tells us, the Edomites had threatened to attack them if they attempted to go through Edomite territory. And this meant taking a very long and frustrating detour. The Israelites grew very impatient. They began to grumble yet again against the Lord and against Moses, something they'd done persistently, as we said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die? There's no bread. There's no water. Should have stayed in Egypt. What a mean old God this was that, who deprived his people of the most basic needs, food and water. Or had he? No, he had done no such thing. Because if you look at the, the other chapters relevant to this, you'll notice that we read about streams bursting from the ground in chapter 20. And he had consistently provided them throughout those 40 years with bread, the manna, which had miraculously formed on the ground, as well as flocks of quail, which the Lord had caused to come in, being blown by a, by a strong east wind and landing on the ground near the camp. So he had a provided for them. Clearly, he had not brought them up out of Egypt to die. But in the eyes of the Israelites, this wasn't good enough. He hadn't done things the way they would have wanted them done. If only they, he had consulted them first, they, they could have given him a list, given a list to Moses to go up the mountain to tell God they could have told them, for example, how they'd like things, their, their bread, maybe artisan, cornstarch, gluten-free bread, maybe something like that, or San Pellegrino, uh, sparkling water. I had some here, actually, yeah, um, in 500 milliliter bottles. In short, what the Israelites were saying to God was, we don't like what you've provided for us so far. We want other things and therefore, we don't trust you to care for us. It all boiled down, and at the end of the day, to a matter of trust. Did they trust Moses? Did they trust the Lord or not? Now, this kind of talk sounds familiar. Where have we heard this before? We only need to go back to Genesis chapter 2, where the Lord commanded our first parents, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree in the center of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because when you eat from it, you'll die. This is my one commandment. And there's no need for spoiler alerts to, 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 to guess what happened. We know what happened. They decided to eat from the one forbidden tree and fell into sin. 
They're like children. You, say, you spell out for them very carefully, this is the one thing you mustn't do, and before you, before you turn your back, they're there trying it out. And what they were saying to God, our first parents, in so many words was, we don't like what you provided for us so far. Being able to eat from every tree but one isn't enough. We want other things like that forbidden tree that you're keeping from us. You're keeping something from us. We don't trust you to care for us. Now, this is what I've, I would like to call snake talk. This was snake talk. These had been the sentiments of Lucifer himself when he had turned against God in heaven in that rebellion we read about in Scripture. Uh, he did, why? Because he desired the very throne of God himself. I want to be like God. I want to be God. I don't like what you've provided for me. I want more. Why do only you get to be God? It's not fair. Adam and Eve learned this language from the serpent. Don't you want to be like God? And now in Numbers 21, we see their descendants talking to God in the same way. Snake talk creates distrust, and distrust leads to rebellion. This was the mother of all sins. To want to be their own God, with full autonomy to judge what was good for them and what was not good for them. That's what they wanted. Now the Israelites, though, forward, wind forward the video to the Israelites' time. They were showing that not much had changed since our first ancestors turned against God in Eden. The prophet Isaiah mourned in these terms. He says, our sins, which are many, testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion, and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God. Through this snake talk, the Israelites were showing their solidarity with the, our first ancestors. I was going to say their first ancestors. It's our first ancestors too. In their trust of the serpent over God. And this was the very reason why the Lord decided to make the point to them in a very eloquent way. He sent among them not scorpions, at least not on this occasion, or wild beasts, but venomous snakes, clearly to teach them where this attitude had come from in the very beginning. As the venom of these fiery serpents coursed through their veins in a, in a fiery inflammation, it is thought, it was intended to waken them to the nature of what sin is, that sin is total rebellion against God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. This is the way we want to go, God, not your way. And to show them how the serpent had deceived them into a course that undermined their trust in God, fueled a rebellious, sinful nature, and led ultimately to death. And as they lay there, dying as the snake venom took effect, they had lots of time to reflect on the consequences of the rebellion. But not much. Our time here on this earth, in whatever circumstances, is always limited sometimes more than we believe. Now, you may say, well, this is very little to do with my life. I mean, what's all this talk about venomous snakes uh, to me? Why, why is that relevant in any way at all? How does this relate to my life? Come on, Colin, I want you to tell me about my life. Well, let me tell you a bit about Susie. Uh, not a person in this congregation, by the way, in case anyone called Susie suddenly feels I'm talking about her. 
Susie was frustrated. She'd been looking forward to reaching a point in her life where she could relax a bit financially. She and Tom had spent the last 20 years struggling to fulfill all their financial commitments. Uh, Tom had just got a raise in salary. And with her own income, Susie felt that at last they were beginning to see daylight and a more comfortable existence. And then came COVID, then came lockdown. Tom's company froze his salary, and Susie was told that she could be among those affected by redundancies as her bosses streamlined the company's operation. Now, Susie was more than frustrated. She was angry. It seemed futile to be angry at a virus, so then she was angry at the world which had let the virus spread to Scotland. But eventually, her anger and frustrations were vented at one person, God. Why had he allowed this to happen? It wasn't fair. She tried to live like a Christian since she was 18, and this is what she got for it. But here's the thing. Susie's negative attitude towards God hadn't just sprouted over, overnight in the wake of a virus. Down through the years, she'd been progressively feeding her negative feelings towards God. It was okay to sing brightly in church in non-COVID days uh, when all went well, but whenever her hopes and, and plans were thwarted, she felt frustrated and impatient with God. And that's where the way these Israelites felt, impatient, very, very impatient. Um, the, some of the versions which translate that verse in Numbers 21 say that, uh, that the people were discouraged. The Hebrew word doesn't reflect just mild discouragement. It reflects that rebellious attitude. The people are impatient. Come on, start working for us for a change instead of for, it, for anybody else. Now, Susie was in the danger zone with regard to her faith because the essence of saving faith is trust. If your trust in God is being undermined, then look to whether or not you actually have saving faith in Christ. Because the reality of saving faith will issue in trust. Susie had ceased to trust God and His providence for, for her life, and she too now was saying, I don't like what you've provided for us so far. Things haven't gone the way I hoped they would. I want other things, very differently from what the way things are and I don't trust you to care for us anymore. That's the road she was on. She wasn't there yet, fully, but that's the way she was heading. Susie didn't realize it. She was now beginning to talk snake talk. She was impatient and resentful of God. Her new nature in Christ was being increasingly dominated by, this earthly, by her earthly sinful nature. Sometimes we call this process backsliding. She was showing more and more solidarity with the Israelites and with Adam and Eve at the very beginning at the point of their fall. What about us? Do we ever become impatient and resentful with the Lord? I don't mean for a brief period when we don't understand uh, and need to process some negative situation. We can all be blindsided by something that comes into our life and we're, we're totally wrong-footed we, we, are, we are totally all over the place, 
and wonder what's going on. We need time to process things like that. There's no doubt. And isn't it great that the Lord has given us in His Word books like the book of Job and many of the Psalms are God's gift to us to help us to process such negative situations. But He also gives us one very strong piece of advice, wait upon the Lord, wait. We don't receive answers to many situations just like that. We need to wait upon Him. Even if we're saying, how long, how long? The Lord understands we are human. He knows, He remembers, as the Psalm 103 says, He remembers we are dust. But the same Psalm, just, as just said before that, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. But I'm referring to a protracted period of resentment and negativity towards the Lord. That can happen, even though outwardly we may not show it. Our Christian friends may not spot it, as, uh, as our trust in the Lord is increasingly diminished and replaced week by week by resentment, although we may give a cheery hi to people we see at church. <clears throat> Sometimes folks may try to rationalize their situation by saying that we're being authentic. That's something which has become very trendy to say uh, in, in the uh, 21st century. I'm being authentic. Um, this is the real me. It's become very popular, even including with Christians. I'm just being honest and express, expressing how I feel. Yes, I'm angry and resentful at God, but this is who I am. I'm being authentic. This is the real me. But let's be clear about this one thing. The authentic me is the sinful me. The authentic me is the sinful me. There's no virtue in this kind of authenticity. All it does is to demonstrate that our earthly nature is sinful and fallen. And it shows that, that we too have solidarity with those Israelites and with our first parents, Adam and Eve. That's why Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 310 and says, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands no one who seeks God, all have turned away. And to the Corinthians, he wrote, in Adam, all die. Those who show solidarity in Adam and to express it so in the ways we've been describing are going to die. That's, that's, that's our end by nature. The Westminster Shorter Catechism expresses this solidarity like this in question 16. It says, all mankind descending from Adam by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Now, I know that sounds weird, doesn't it? That you and I were actually way back there. We were there in Adam and with Eve when they sinned. You say, that's not fair. Fair or not, it's a fact. It's a, it's a theological fact and it's a practical fact in terms of our Christian lives, that we are dealing with this nature which had its origin there and then and with them. Now, having considered what it means to have solidarity with our first parents and through them with the serpent whom they believed, we now go on to our second point, which is that the solidarity which the second Adam, Christ, showed with us for our salvation. Now, the venomous snakes brought home to the Israelites 
that they'd sinned against the Lord by the rebellious complaining. And they asked Moses to pray to the Lord that he would take away the snakes from among them, showing the need for a mediator to go to God for them. And in that sense, Moses is a foreshadowing of our great mediator, Jesus. But um, the Lord had other plans. He didn't just cure the snake bites like that. He allowed the snakes to remain but made provision for the effects of the snake bites to be counteracted. Isn't that an interesting solution? He commanded Moses to make the image of a snake from metal. Now, the word used in verse 9 for the metal is usually translated bronze, but the same word in Hebrew can also be translated copper. And it's more likely to have been copper uh, for reasons I won't go into this evening. But then having made this snake, we'll call it the bronze serpent because that's how we familiarly know it, he had it put on a pole high enough for everyone to, in the camp of Israel to see. From whatever part of the camp they, they, were, they were lying or sick or whatever, whatever they were, they could see where Moses put it if they wanted to look, that is. And um, simply by looking, they were healed. A strange procedure indeed, which some biblical scholars have thought to link, sought to link with the cultures of Middle Eastern nations around that time, which, many of which worshipped snakes, such as you see the asp in the ceremonial headdress of the Egyptian pharaoh, for example. But this misses several points. First of all, it was God Himself who commanded the image to be made. There was no inspiration here from idolatrous cultures. Secondly, the image could not have been for the worship of God because that would have been a breach of the second commandment, not to make any graven image to be worshipped such as Israel had already done with the golden calf, resulting in the deaths of 3,000 people. Thirdly, the Israelites were not commanded to worship it, but simply to look towards it with the expectation of being healed. Now, for us as Christians, such a bizarre procedure makes no sense at all. We'd be left guessing at its significance unless, that is to say, Jesus Himself had not brought light to the matter in His discussion with the Jewish religious teacher Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 14-15. He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. <clears throat> and in passing, let's note how much gospel there is in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of gospel. If you're reading Scripture and allowing it to be interpreted by Scripture, then you have the key to understanding gospel truth and to seeing Christ everywhere. That's why in Luke chapter 24, Jesus, when He came among His disciples after the resurrection, He opened their minds so that they might understand the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So, there is gospel everywhere in Scripture, and let us never, let's never get part of that uh, movement which uh, has become popular in the 21st century. Some, some teachers, false teachers saying, oh, we, we can just unhitch unhitch the Old Testament from the New um, in the same kind of way as a Saturn V rocket, first stage falls away, 
and you've got the other stages taking it into orbit. We don't need the Old Testament. Yes, we do. It's the Word of God given to us to tell us about Christ from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. So, all Scripture tells us something about ourselves and our nature, as we're seeing, or about Christ, His person, and His kingdom. And, of course, the nature of God as revealed through Christ. So, and as from Jesus' words in John 3, 14, uh, He has provided us with the key to understanding the symbolism of the lifting up of the bronze serpent. From Jesus' words, we can clearly see several things. First of all, the lifting up of the bronze serpent foreshadowed the lifting up of Jesus on the cross. In John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus spoke again of His being lifted up from the earth. And the gospel writer tells us He did this to show the kind of death He was going to die. So, the foreshadowing of the lifting up on the cross. Secondly, the bronze image in the form of a serpent symbolized sinful humanity and our solidarity with Adam and Satan, as we've already said. But thirdly, Christ identifying Himself with the bronze serpent declares that on the cross, He was going to identify with us as our, as our sin bearer. Our sins had to be punished, and the juggernaut of God's justice was bearing down on our sinful race. But because of the great love that God has for us, He chose to come in the person of Jesus, show solidarity with us by submitting to a sinner's baptism, living a perfect life as the second Adam in a sinful world. Interesting, isn't it, how the first Adam was tempted in a garden and failed the second Adam was tempted in a wilderness and was victorious. Just an interesting little comparison there. He overcame all of Satan's temptations, which the first Adam had failed to do. And then he took the sinner's place right in the path of that juggernaut of God's justice. He didn't have to do it. But because of his great love for us, he chose to do it. And as our sin-bearer, Jesus fulfilled the symbolism of the bronze serpent when He identified with us. As Paul said to the Corinthians, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You see that solidarity working its way through and working its way out in what Jesus did for us. Basically, through the cross, Jesus was saying to His people, to us, the sinfulness of your rebellious snake nature requires nothing less than the anger and condemnation of God. However, I was punished for that nature. I absorbed its evil into myself. I received the punishment which it deserves until that punishment was totally spent. As Peter says in his letter, one of his letters, he says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. On the cross, God poured out His sternest punishments on the soul of His Son, whose soul at that moment was characterized by the evil of human rebellion. 
That was not a moment when God the Father could say of Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Rather, he, was, he, would, he, would, he would be able to say only this much, this creature on the cross represents the snake nature of that fallen race. This nature which had rebelled against all goodness and which deserved the punishment of hell itself, Jesus took those punishments. And it was at that moment that God the Father removed from His Son, and I'm trying to say this in as careful a way as I possibly can, so as not to be theologically inaccurate. At that moment, God the Father removed from His Son all evidences of His presence, resulting in the cry of dereliction from Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, beholding that cross, if he did indeed do that, the Father would be looking at a creature which more resembled the rebellious serpent than his beloved son. What practical application can we make of these things? Well, today, if you're a Christian, be aware of this, that you have not one but two natures. You have your earthly sinful nature, the snake nature, as I call it, with which we are born and which constantly tugs at our sleeve, prompting us to say, think, and do things which are in rebellion against God. And it's good to know that that's what's going on. If you want ever to ask yourself, why am I feeling this way? I'm not saying this is always the answer, but it could be that you're feeling a certain way because you're, you are giving place to, deferring to an earthly sinful nature. But having put your faith and trust in Christ for salvation, and having been born again through His Holy Spirit, you have another nature. You have the Christ nature within you. And these two natures are in conflict with each other. The Christian has been described a little bit like a, a walking civil war. As we read in Galatians 5.17, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with one another so that you do not do what you want. And that's why we have this struggle going on within us. The challenge of the Christian life is to live life depending on the Spirit. And it's, it's those times when we are doing that that we consistently produce what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But if, like Susie, you're not trusting the Lord for all of your circumstances, then the fallen earthly sinful nature is again striving to take control. The Bible's very clear on how we should deal with the snake nature within us. Colossians 3.5, we read, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And Paul gives a list of things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. All of these and others too, That's, that list is by no means exhaustive. Others too, like impatience and distrust belong in that list, and they, because they rebel against the work of God within us, and they seek to strangle the Christ life 
Now, if today you feel you may be backsliding, then know that, that the way of restoration and spiritual victory is exactly the same for you now, today, as it was at the first, the way of the cross. It's as you go again to the cross and see Jesus crucified for you as you once did, taking your place so that you might be freed from the guilt and power of sin, then that is how to be victorious. The way up is down, submitting to the Lord and His will. But if today you're not a Christian, then know this, that you're in great spiritual danger because the venom of sin is in your veins and it has been undealt with as regards its guilt and power. You have only one nature, the one which is earthly and sinful, and the one you, which you share in solidarity with the rest of the fallen human race. And one day, when you stand before God, that nature will be judged, found guilty, and separated from God forever in eternal death, as the Bible teaches. However, the Lord has provided the cure for the venom and guilt of sin through the suffering and death of His Son on the cross, as we have said. But before you can gain any benefit from His atoning sacrifice, there are two things you must do, and in, in these, the Israelites show us the way. You must come before God personally and acknowledge your sins. You too need a mediator, by the way. Nobody overcomes, nobody from a fallen race ever came to God except through a mediator. And we don't have Moses, but we have Jesus Himself. He says, he says, all that the Father has given me shall come to me. Him, him who comes to me, I will never turn away. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no man comes to the Father except through me. We must come to Christ with a sincere heart, acknowledge our sins with a commitment to turn away from them. That's what the Bible calls repentance. And the second thing which, which must accompany repentance is faith. And the Bible puts it in this term, these terms which, which uh, tie in with our, our Bible passage tonight, to look to Jesus as the only Savior. There's no other name under heaven by which you may be saved. But what does the Bible mean when it tells us to look to Jesus? When our passage tells us that the Israelites wanted, who wanted to be healed of the snake bites had to look at the bronze snake, that was a physical looking at a physical object to cure a physical problem. When Jesus compared Himself and His cross to the snake on the pole, He clearly did not have a physical looking in mind. In fact, very few people, in the, even the minority of His own disciples, witnessed the crucifixion because they were all hiding. Very few people. But He helps us to understand that what counts here is a spiritual looking which is in mind. He says, everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life, may be cured of the venom of sin and have eternal life. So the question is, have you believed in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you looked by faith at the cross and seen your own sins being punished there in the person of Jesus Christ? That's the critical question for your salvation. So this looking means believing in Him, as, we've, as we might say. Whenever you see in the Bible to believe in, not just believe, but to believe in, it means to place your trust in Him. Not just acknowledge the existence of something. Um, 
And James, in his letter, says, you believe there's one God, believe without the preposition. You believe there's one God, you're doing well. But mind you, the devil can do that too, and all his demons. They believe there's one God. Uh, but to believe in, that, Satan will never ever be able to believe in God. Only a soul set free by the blood of Christ can believe in God, placing his or her trust in Him. Something which Adam and Eve in the garden were unwilling to do. And the Israelites in the wilderness were unwilling to do. Something that Susie in her time of testing was becoming increasingly tempted not to do. What she needed to learn was that if she could trust the Lord for something so momentous as her eternal salvation, she could also trust Him to provide for all her needs during and after a COVID pan pandemic. So as we close, rem let's remember that the God who once showed solidarity with us in dealing with our sins in Christ to bring us back to Himself now enables us to enjoy solidarity with Him if we are Christians if we put our trust in Jesus for salvation. For as Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 113 of his letter, he has transferred us from the dominion of darkness and, uh, and transferred us into the kingdom of his son. He has, sorry, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the dominion of his son, in whom the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So because Jesus came to be with us and show solidarity with us by faith, we can now be in Him. And if we are in Him, that is our identity. That's where our identity lies. And as such, let's live to the praise of, of, the, of His glory in this life and in the life to come. Amen. Let's pray.